So I'd like to welcome you as well to the center. My name is Sharon Salzberg. This is Miosh and Kelly. And over there, probably out of sight for many of you, are Susan O'Brien and Joseph Goldstein, who will all be um, guiding this retreat together. I want to spend just a little bit of time tonight. I know a lot of you arrived just today, and you're probably quite tired. Um, spend a little time just setting the stage, establishing a context for our time together here, and then formally beginning the retreat. It's really, it's quite an extraordinary thing to take the time to make this kind of inner journey, to be able to uh, come to a place like this, to let go of what's familiar, what's convenient, our ordinary situation, to take this kind of journey. We journey not, of course, in the conventional sense, but within, in that spirit of discovery, of adventure, which can be quite tremendous. I was thinking just earlier about this time that Joseph and I were in Houston. We'd gone there to study with our yoga teacher, and one night we all went out to order dinner. We were going to take it out of this restaurant and bring it back um, to our friend's house. And So we're standing around the restaurant, having placed the order, and struck up a conversation with the guy who was really just a young kid behind the counter filling our order as we waited for the dinner. And in the course of the conversation, the kid disclosed that his life's dream was someday to travel to Wyoming. He talked about how he'd never been out of Houston and someday he was going to get to Wyoming and that Wyoming to him represented just huge open space and clear air and, and place, a place he'd never been, a place just filled with a sense of, of possibility and, and all kinds of new unfoldings might happen once he got to Wyoming. And we heard all this, and Joseph looked at him and said, there's an inner Wyoming, you know. And the kid looked at him and said, that's freaky. (laughs) And he walked away. (laughs) It was actually a very Joseph moment, for those of you who know him well. But there is an inner Wyoming. (laughs) There is that space of tremendous possibility and clarity and openness, that, that kind of boundless capacity There is inside, and it's, if not the direct knowledge of that, then the great suspicion that that exists that brings us to a place like this, to form this community, to make a friend of silence, to make a friend of ourselves in a whole different way. We practice together here because of that conviction. In fact, there's this wonderful poem from William Stafford where he said the things you do not have to say make you rich saying the things you do not have to say weakens your talk 
Hearing the things you do not need to hear dulls your hearing. The things you know before you hear them, this is you, and this is the reason that you're in the world. These things that we we kind of know, but maybe don't have full faith in, full knowledge of, this is why we're here. It's to discover and trust that deepest level of our own being. It's said in this tradition that the Buddha is not considered to be like a, a divine being, a deity of some kind. He was a human being. He was a human being who had many questions about the nature of life, the kinds of questions that any of us might have said in our own way, questions about how to reach that deepest place within, that place of clear and pure knowing. The Buddha asked questions about the nature of life like, What does it mean to be born in this human body, to be an infant, to be helpless, dependent, so fragile, so subject to conditioning, to training, then to grow up, to grow old, whether we like that or not? What does it mean to exist in a body that no matter what we command, someday we'll die? And is there a quality of happiness or peace or composure that will not shatter as the body follows its own nature? What does it mean to have a human mind which cascades through a torrent of feelings, constantly changing, so that we might wake up in the morning full of doubt and by mid-afternoon we're, we're filled with joy and then fear, and then anguish, and then calm. Round and round and round, over and over again, all of these changes, no matter what we decide. You know, you can walk here into the meditation hall and say, okay, I've decided. I'm never going to fall asleep when I meditate. But sometimes it happens, doesn't it? The mind also seems to have its own nature in that way, constantly changing. And the Buddha asked, in effect, is there, is there a still point, not the still point of restraint or constraint or dampening down what we're feeling, but is there a way to be with what we're feeling so that our happiness does not shatter in the face of all of those changing feelings? And what does it mean to be a human being in this world where... Conditions are constantly shifting, moving, turning. Sometimes in ways that are wondrous and beautiful and sometimes in ways that are terrible and awful. What does it mean to realize that we cannot control in the sense of command the unfolding of events? That even when we have the feeling of sure domination it's bound to be challenged as we move into the next moment. I just had this this kind of odd experience where I was in L.A. for most of January, and I was supposed to leave to go to Houston, actually, uh, to be with our yoga teacher, when a, a friend of mine got some kind of scary 
medical news and needed some further tests. So I stayed in L.A., canceled my trip to Houston. I stayed in L.A., and she had the tests, and everything was fine. It was perfectly fine. So there was a, a time of just a feeling of great celebration and joy, and re, especially relaxation. I thought, okay, now I can just relax. Everything is set. Everything is together. So we were lying on her bed watching television that night, and she said, did you feel that? And I said, what? And she said, I think there's an earthquake happening. And sure enough, all of a sudden, the bed started going like this. I thought, oh, great. You know, what happened to that feeling of it's all together now? You know, everything is set. It's, it's fine. Nothing's, nothing's wrong in the world. And all of a sudden, the earth is moving. Life is like that. And so where is the happiness we can come to? You know, and happiness doesn't mean something giddy or disconnected or oblivious to what's going on. Where is the happiness that is completely connected to what's going on but isn't, isn't destroyed in the face of that kind of change? This is said to be the potential that the Buddha had as a human being and that he realized <clears throat> that he brought to fruition. This is the potential for that kind of understanding clarity, connection, love, happiness that we all have as human beings. And so we come together in a time like this, in a place like this, to practice with that knowing that we're not trying to make something out of nothing, but we are trying to bring to life a capacity that is is definitely and genuinely within us. Just like in life anything might happen at any time, so it is in practice that anything might happen at any time. It isn't the kind of meditation practice where we are somehow striving or struggling to attain certain states and then try to protect those states and um, resent anything that takes us away from that state. It's the kind of practice that more is about transforming our relationship to what is. What we uncover, what we see, what we notice in the course of doing a retreat like this is a pretty wide range of experiences, and that's right. I think of it sometimes as being like going into this old attic room and turning on a light. We go into the room... We turn on a light, which is like the light of awareness. And it doesn't matter if that room has been dark for a day or a week or 10,000 years. We go in, we turn on the light, and what we see is everything. We see these, these beautiful, extraordinary treasures that are so beautiful, we can hardly believe that such a thing exists in our very own attic. And, and we see these objects that are kind of disturbing. And we might think, oh, you know, I thought I got rid of that long ago. What's that still doing here? We might see these dusty, neglected corners and think, you know, I better clean that up. We see everything that a human being can want and know and feel and fear. Everything is a part of our meditative experience. It's really a practice of inclusion, learning how to include more and more and more of our experience in the light of awareness, 
which is the same as the light of compassion. That's why in the course of a retreat such as this, you can't be doing it wrong. There's no experience that is kind of over the line. No amount of sleepiness, no amount of restlessness, no amount of boredom, whatever it might be, along with the delights, it's all fine. Everything's a part of it. And so there's some very deep quality of relaxation that can happen if we remember that. It's its own special, weird kind of fun when we remember that. We don't have to judge our experience to get attached or to reject, but rather to open to whatever may be happening and use whatever may be happening to deepen our understanding about ourselves and about our own potential. The instructions that we follow continually unfold throughout the retreat. We'll begin very briefly tonight, but tomorrow morning. And then each morning there will be a new elaboration on the instruction until it becomes a a more complete picture of what this particular technique is about. But always they're very simple. It's said somewhere that when the Buddha himself was teaching, they say that he taught so simply that even a seven-year-old could understand him. And perhaps as a consequence of that, it's also said he had many fully enlightened seven-year-old disciples. So sometimes I think that's what we need to do, is like find the seven-year-old inside of us that is eager to learn, that isn't pretentious, that isn't carrying around a lot of expectations and demands, you know, well, I shouldn't be feeling this really, I'm beyond that. You know, but, but to have that much openness and tenderness and wholeheartedness and learning how to be simple is part of that. I, like many people, when I first heard the meditation instructions, was rather contemptuous of them because I thought, that's really stupid. You know, I had been a a student, a college student at the State University of New York at Buffalo and took a class in Asian philosophy, which was a class in Buddhism, as it turned out, and um, was tremendously inspired by the possibility of actually doing something about my mind. And so when I heard about this program at the university where you could apply, in effect, to spend your junior year abroad, um, you would create an independent study project, and if it got accepted, you could go off for a year, the theory being that you would come back for your final year. And my joke is usually that being Buffalo, New York, many people went, and not that many people came back, which was true. (laughs) So I heard about this program, and I thought, well, you know, I'll design a project to go to India and study Buddhism. And lo and behold, it got accepted, so off I went. And I was very, I had a lot of fanciful notions about the exotic, mysterious, sophisticated, esoteric technique that I would be given that would transform my life and take away all of my suffering. And I got to India, and I finally got to a, a retreat situation to learn how to meditate. I entered, until this last um, course here, I entered my first intensive 10-day 
meditation retreat, never having meditated for even one minute before. So I walked in the door, and we sat down, formally began the retreat, and much to my astonishment, the very first instruction was, sit down and feel your breath. I thought, feel my breath? I could have stayed in Buffalo to feel my breath. Why did I come all the way to India to feel my breath? But then I thought, well, I'm so new at this, and he must have to say something publicly to include all the people such as myself who are such rank beginners. So maybe this is just sort of the general instruction that he gives, and what's going to happen is I'll try it out, I'll do it for a while, and I'll have a great breakthrough experience, which will be obvious to everyone, particularly the teacher. And at that point, he'll take me aside into this other room, and he'll give me the real instruction. You know, that special, magical, extraordinary, sophisticated, esoteric thing I come to India for. And I practiced, and I practiced, and I practiced, and it's been over 30 years now. (laughs) And when I go to sit in that particular tradition, in that school, it's just the same instruction. It's not the last instruction. It's the first instruction. Sit down and feel your breath. I once... I told this story in California once, and somebody in the group said, well, you know, maybe everyone else in the class went ahead, you know, and got all the other instruction. You're the only one who 30 years later is still being told, you know, just sit down and feel your breath. But it's not that, I think. (laughs) (laughs) But really, contained in the simplest of exercises can be the most profound transformations. It's not so easy actually, to sit down and feel your breath. It's hard to feel just one breath, to bring our attention to this very moment, to be fully alive right here and now. Our minds will go to the past, will go to the future, will do all kinds of things. It's hard to know how to gently let go of distraction without berating ourselves and punishing ourselves and judging ourselves to have enough compassion and forgiveness and grace to let go and come back. It's hard to be with just one breath without feeling, well, I better get ready for the next 50, you know, and leaning forward into the future in what in classical Buddhist terms is called becoming, to leave the state of being and lean forward, getting ready for life rather than living it. It's hard to be with just one breath because it's hard to open to our experience just as it is and how it changes. It's said in the tradition that one of the reasons the breath is is chosen as the beginning instruction, as kind of the platform or home base, the beginning and what we return to, is that it's a basically neutral object. It's a place where the mind can rest. We're not dealing with intense waves of pleasure nor great pain when we're being with the breath. But even here, ironically enough, in what is meant to be a basically neutral object, we can judge. I'm not breathing right. It's too soft. It's too harsh. It's too this. It's too that. It's not so easy just to be with the breath. There is so much that happens just in the simplicity of that process. To be with the breath, to be with the body, to be with our emotions, to be with our experience. However it might be, presenting, 
but in a wholeness spirit. That's the practice. We practice the skills of concentration, of gathering our energy, which might be normally very scattered and dispersed and diffuse, gathering it together so that we experience the integration of our being and the empowerment of our minds and hearts as all of that energy becomes available to us rather than being wasted. We practice mindfulness, which is the active part of awareness, to be able to come close to our experience, to include whatever it is, regardless of what it is, in this field of awareness. To be able to touch deeply what is happening to us without adding to it the mechanical habits of trying to hold on, trying to push away, or getting confused. We practice loving-kindness, both informally, say in those moments when we've sat down with the intention to be with the breath and we wake up in Houston, (laughs) as we gently let go and come back, it is the practice of loving-kindness. And we also practice it formally here as we explore those dimensions of inclusion, including more and more aspects of ourselves in a sense of friendship or kindness, including more and more beings in our field of recognition, of connection. All of those skills are what we've come here together to do, to work with, to explore. We come here as a community, which is really a very special kind of community. It's a place where we go within and explore our experience, and we also practice very much a sense of harmlessness, of of wishing others well, of compassion. We create a container here of safety, of protection. I was talking to some people earlier today about this retreat that we used to do many, many years ago when we, pretty much when we just opened the center within the first few years, called the Parents' Course, where... Uh, friends of ours and people who are on staff here were having a great deal of trouble with their parents because of this strange new hobby that they'd undertaken that their parents were very uncomfortable about, which was meditation. And so they decided to bring their hostile, anxious, angry parents here (laughs) for us to guide in meditation, which they did. And it was an extraordinary experience. It It was quite beautiful, but the beginning, we, we figured that People would be just much too uncomfortable to eat in silence. It was so strange, a social custom. So um, there was talking during meals, and we would eat with the parents that they would get to know us a little bit. So I remember the first breakfast, um, Joseph was sitting opposite a staff person's mother, and she looked him in the eye and she said, you've kidnapped my daughter and you've brainwashed her, and it's not going to happen to me. (laughs) So... That was the general tone of the, of the retreat. Um, it was so amazing watching these parents, although it did mellow out significantly by the end, and it was quite a beautiful thing, but 
it was amazing watching these people come into the meditation hall with all of their belongings because they were afraid to leave it in their rooms. <laughs> you know, and so there'd be just like these piles of things, like, and people would lock their doors. And of course, we don't have any keys. You know, so people would lock themselves out and somebody would be running around looking for a master key. And, you know, it was shocking, but it was also, it was so intense to realize how much fear we usually live in and how we feel, sometimes very reasonably so, that we need to protect ourselves and protect our things and we're so guarded and there's such a sense of self and other. And, you know, and here it's like, it's a radical, radical kind of community where we are declaring that the reason we have come together is to do this tremendous inner exploration and to create a sense of, of safety, of harmlessness with and for each other. So it's a very beautiful thing. It's like making a friend of silence and making a friend of, of kindness. The entire retreat atmosphere is designed toward that end both ends, so that people can have, people can adhere to simplicity and thereby go as deep as possible into their own experience. And we can all do that together in a way that is in harmony. So it's both those things that <clears throat> define the, the nature of the retreat. Traditionally, when we begin a retreat, we begin by undertaking uh, formally what are called the three refuges and the five precepts, which is another way of coming together and recognizing that we are embarking on the creation of this community and on our own inner journey. Traditionally, we take refuge in what are called in Buddhism the three jewels of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, Taking refuge isn't the same thing as declaring yourself a Buddhist, even for nine days, but rather in whatever way feels appropriate to you, it means recognizing your greatest human potential. I mean, here was the Buddha as a human being who had those very same kind of questions and came to some resolution of those questions through the power of his own awareness. And so might we. I've often thought of Buddhism as being a kind of transparency. When we look at the Buddha, really what we should be seeing is ourselves. We see the possibility within ourselves of boundless compassion, of great wisdom, of integrity. So we look at the Buddha and we see ourselves. And we don't just see ourselves, like I am such a special person. Isn't that great? But when we see ourselves on that level of that extraordinary capacity, what we're really seeing is that potential in everybody. So if we look at the Buddha, we see ourselves. If we look at ourselves, we see all beings. That's the nature of taking refuge. It's honoring that, that universal and extraordinary capacity for awakening that we all have. We take refuge not only in the Buddha, but in the Dharma, which has many meanings. It means the Buddha's teaching, it means the path, it means the laws of nature. Really, when we take refuge in the Dharma, we're taking refuge in the truth of things. We're aligning ourselves with a commitment to the truth in little ways and big ways so that 
we are willing to honor the unfolding of our experience, to let it be as it is. And we take refuge in the Sangha, which also has many different meanings. It means the community of monks and nuns who, from the time of the Buddha, 2,500 years ago, have preserved these teachings in an authentic transmission so that what we experience um, in terms of the practice is, is still a very potent path. It means the community of beings who have walked this path from beginningless time, who have been willing to take a risk to seek a different way, who have come to a much greater understanding of themselves, who freed their minds, who've served others. And it means the community of beings who've gathered here, like us right now, who together support one another in this endeavor. We take refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, in the Sangha, to remind ourselves of all that we might be, and that the means for accomplishing that are, are genuine, they're true, they're pragmatic. It's not just an ideal. One of the great comments one of my early teachers said to me, a man named Manindra, he said, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem, now you solve yours. And it was fantastic, really, because as I recall it, I think it was probably the first time in my life that somebody looked at me as though to say, you can solve your problem. You can solve the problem of the pain and the confusion that actually brought you here to India to learn how to meditate. You can. So it's in that spirit. If we were just honoring the Buddha for something that happened in a long-ago time in a faraway place, that would be nice, but it wouldn't be that freeing. We take refuge because of what it means about us and about our commitment to the truth. And then we undertake what are called five precepts, which are the traditional guidelines of ethical behavior that uh, in some way form the nature of this community, that that form the nature of the protection of this community, that are the expressions of our commitment to kindness. And these are, first we take a precept for the time that we are here together to refrain from killing any living being, to refrain from physical violence. This precept is about respecting all of life, using this time to develop a reverence for life, to recognize our tremendous, extraordinary interconnectedness that we do not exist, any of us, as separate and apart. And so even with bugs and insects and so on, we make the effort not, not to kill We take a precept to refrain from stealing, which means you don't have to bring all your things into the hall when you come. Uh, More literally translated, that means not taking that which is not freely given. And so on a more subtle level, that means practicing, practicing a sense of contentment, taking time to notice what is given, 
taking time to experience it fully, not being driven by our, our desires to have what we don't have. And so the kind of gratitude and presence uh, practicing this precept brings is also a very strong component of, of being here. We take a precept in life to refrain from sexual misconduct, which means not using our sexual energy in a way that's harmful or exploitative, either harmful to ourselves or harmful to others. On retreat, the precept translates into refraining from sexual activity so that all of the energy that comes forth is something that we can use in this deeper exploration of ourselves and so that the force of desire becomes something that we actually can look at and become more aware of rather than just be driven by. We take a precept to refrain from lying or speaking in a way that causes harm. Also realizing that our words are very potent, they're very powerful. On retreat, that translates into maintaining silence. It's not absolute total silence because you will be meeting with different of the teachers and speaking and so on, but not having kind of conversation between yourselves, either verbally or with notes, um, to really treasure this opportunity. It's funny because, you know, sometimes when people haven't been on retreat before, a retreat like this, the thing they tend to be most apprehensive about is the prospect of not speaking. Either they're afraid or people at home say, you're never going to be able to be quiet for nine days or whatever it is. And and they come with that feeling. But almost always, it's that very aspect of the retreat, being silent, that people say at the end was the most beautiful. Because it's like for once in our lives, we can be quiet. We don't have to present ourselves to others as special or weird or anything. Rather than trying to figure out who we are in terms of the reactions of somebody else, we can go within and learn to trust our own experience and honor our own experience. It's a huge relief to practice that kind of silence. And we undertake a precept to refrain from taking intoxicants that cloud the mind and create heedlessness. This means uh, not taking recreational drugs or alcohol. It doesn't mean stopping your prescription medication, which is a rather good thing to keep going. But um, again, it's, it's this tremendous act of discovery to see what happens through the power of our minds when we are practicing in such a way that we are discovering and deepening the genuine clarity, openness, peace that is there, that is our own potential. The poet Rumi once said, how long will we fill our pockets like children with dirt and stones? Let the world go. Holding it, we never know ourselves, never are airborne. So this is our time. We can let the world go. 
doesn't mean care for the world, a connection to the world, or care for others. It means our obsessions, our addictions, our confusions, those things we can let go so that we can know ourselves in a different way, so that we can be airborne. So what I'd like to do now is just formally undertake the refuges and precepts, and then we'll have a a very brief meditation. And tomorrow morning at the 8.30 sitting, we'll go uh, much more into the, the first instructions. So if you want to just stretch for a moment, that's fine. I'm going to uh, actually do these in English, and you can repeat them silently to yourselves. Traditionally, we take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha three times, and then go through each of the precepts just once. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. For the second time, I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. For the third time, I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. I undertake the precept to refrain refrain from killing any living being. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which has not been offered. I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual activity. 
I undertake the precept to refrain from lying or speaking in ways that cause harm, to observe silence. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking intoxicants, cloud the mind. We'll sit in meditation for just a few minutes. As you sit, try to sit comfortably. See if you can have your back erect without being strained or overarched. And close your eyes, unless you're accustomed to sitting with your eyes open, which is fine, or unless you get really sleepy, in which case it's a good idea to open your eyes. And guess what the first instruction is. See if you can find the place in your body where you feel your breath most easily. Maybe the in and out movement of air at the nostrils or the rising, falling movement of the chest or the abdomen. Wherever it seems most distinct, most natural. See if you can feel just one breath. Make a quiet mental notation of in and out or rising, falling to support the awareness of the breath. And if you find your attention wandering, going to the past, to the future speculation, judgment, whatever it is, don't worry about it. That is really the most important moment in the meditative process. If you notice your attention has wandered, no matter how long it's been since you last consciously felt a breath, see if you can gently let go and begin again. If you have to begin again over and over again, that's fine, that's the practice. Just one breath.
We don't have to try to make anything special happen. Just connect as completely as you can to the feeling of the breath. Using it to anchor your attention in this moment, for this moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.